You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. We're live. Yay. Hello, everyone. Hi. My name is Ivan E. Debery. And I'm Eric Borlaug. And this is another episode of The Parsnip Ship. Um, Tonight we are at Cloud City in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And what are we listening to tonight, Eric? We are listening to Tara by Brian Otonio. And Brian, we like to start off by asking our playwright a question, which is, there's nowhere that doesn't feedback, which is, if uh, what would the world be like if it didn't have this play in it? I guess the world would be missing a play that imagines what would happen if John Patrick Shanley and Wes Craven met up for a drink and had a knife fight. <laughs> like... Uh, in the aesthetic sense, I guess, I don't know. Like, I mean, when I started, <laughs> I started writing this play and it was really bad. And then I sort of worked with that and um, <laughs> turned it on its ear and like made it bad on purpose, which is like a different deal, at least the first part anyway. And then I sort of, I don't know, like I, I mean, I guess thematically this question asks like where families are at with their young gays, particularly within like the Latin community. Um, but uh, yeah, it's also like violent and fun and bloody and tender. And so yeah, that's what the world would be missing. And there's Scarlett O'Hara runs through it for a minute. Like it's weird, spoiler alert. I don't know, that's all I got. <laughs> Who gets it? Um, I'd like to take a moment to welcome our musical guest, Merrick Smith. Um, and we're going to turn over to Merrick for a song in just a moment, but first we're going to introduce you to our fabulous cast. Hi, I'm Tim Nikolai playing Roman and John. I'm Dana Berger playing the roles of Faye, Margot, Claire, and Deidre. I'm Melissa Crespo, I'm the director, and I'm also reading stage directions. I'm Margie Nunez, and I'm playing the roles of Scarlet, Receptionist, and Tara. I'm Jose Maria Aguila, and I will be playing Billy Joe and Ricky. I'm Laura Gomez, and I'm playing Blythe and Awilda. Awesome. And now for our first song by our musical guest. I don't want to hug you. I don't want to love you. No, I just want to take you home and get your back on my floor. No, I don't want to talk more. What do I come to a bar for? Because I want to take you home and get your pretty little ass out my door in the morning. Because I cannot love you yet. I'm too immature. I am not a real man yet. Cause my bank account tells me I'm poor No, no, I can't afford feelings Cause I'm not rich Go buy some feelings when I make it But then I'll be nice and full of shit I'll call you back when I make it Big 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 
wanna drive a fast car Yeah, I wanna be a movie star So until then I can't like you Just for who you are Cause why would you like me If I can't live outrageously So until then it's gonna be You in and out of my door You see Cause I cannot love you yet I'm too immature yeah, I am not a real man yet Cause my bank account tells me I'm poor No, no, I can't afford feelings cause I'm not rich Go buy some feelings when I make it But then I'll be nice and full of shit I'll call you back when I make it big 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 So get in the car now Yeah, we're leaving the bar now Cause I'm gonna take you home and do all of that stuff I said before No, don't look at the moon now Don't say something cool now Or anything charming at all That'll make me think of you soon Thinking about how you're doing And where you are Since you left my car That pretty girl that girl with the moon, will I see her soon? My thoughts straight to you, it's true. Did you find somebody new? I can't think of anyone but you. But that doesn't matter, cause I cannot love you yet. I cannot love you yet I cannot love you yet I wanna drive a fast car Ferrari Get an airplane with Atari I'm gonna fly that shit like a hawk For once I'm gonna walk just like a talk I'm gonna give a million bucks to charity Cause that's just me and then you'll see a million more Just in the street from homeless people Good what they need from you and me and speaking to me Oh everyone likes me never see So make a scene I'm not that mean and I may be green But I'm just being me I'm just being me yeah, I'm just being me. I'm just being me. I'll call you back when I make it big. Tara by Brian Othaño. Part one, Temptation Waits. Scene one, lights up on the hallway of a posh high school. Deidre performs a sinister ballet as she scatters Xerox love letters around the hall. She's listening to Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King on a headset, which we hear at ear-splitting levels. Scarlet rushes Deidre and yanks the earbuds out of her ears. The music cuts out. What the fuck do you think you're doing, Deidre? Oh, hey, Scarlet. Is everyone on the faculty getting a piece of that puss, or is it just Mr. Carlson? Oh, you little bitch. Scarlet slaps Deidre. Deidre retaliates. In the hall of the Mountain King resumes and a bell rings, signaling the end of class and the start of a vicious fight. A crowd is heard egging them on. Scarlet emerges victorious. Someone in the crowd tosses Scarlet a broken field hockey stick. Scarlet straddles Deidre's limp body and raises the stick high over her head, aiming it squarely at Deidre's face. Roman enters. Scarlet sees him. Roman, it's out. This little whore nugget just exposed us. Scarlet stabbing her in the face isn't going to change that. Oh, I know that. 
Scarlet plunges the broken field hockey stick into Deidre's ear. She runs to Roman and straddles him. They kiss. Scarlet gives the crowd the middle finger, does a cartwheel, and twirls down the hall. <laughs> Roman takes off after her. Scene two, dawn, the next morning. A hotel room. Roman sleeps on the bed. Scarlet takes selfies beside him, clad only in a blood-stained Oxford shirt, knee-high socks, and a thong. Her phone rings. She answers it. Lights up on Blythe. Hey, bitch. There she is. There's my girl. Have you seen the news? The local outlets are running with the story like wildfire. There are cameras posted outside your hotel. Brava, darling, brava. Our guys are compiling the best stuff for a zizzle reel. It's all happening. Jezebel is touting you as this Nabokovian icon for the 21st century. Page six thinks you're a whore. They both want interviews, but we're holding out for bigger fish. How about the Instagram shots? So far, so good, but for fuck's sake, what did I tell you about angles? Was that rhinoplastic for naught? And that outfit, take it off and clean yourself up. All that blood is unbecoming. No way. This look is going to be iconic. Like Patty Hearst's beret or Madonna's cone bra or Jewel's snaggle tooth. Has Nancy Grace caught on? No. She won't touch this unless there's a corpse involved. We might be able to scare up a corpse en route to Canada. About that, we should rethink Canada. It's just not sexy. A cross-country John might make for more interesting visuals. Just think, you and Roman, crop-dusting this scandal across America as you make your way to Mexico. If we run to a hotter climate, I can wear skimpier outfits. Yes! That breast augmentation was pricey. Let's make it work for us. Roman stirs in bed. Scarlet notices. I've got to go. Bye, Mommy! Lights out on Blythe as Scarlet ends the call. She sticks her phone in her bra and crawls into bed as Roman stirs, looks around, then sits bolt upright. We're still here. Why didn't you wake me? I thought I should let you sleep it off. Roman touches a blood stain on Scarlet's shirt. Is this her blood or yours? A little from column A and a little from column B. Scarlet hands Roman a Red Bull. Look alive! I booked us a zip car, a convertible, because that just seemed right, and Mexico. We're going to Mexico. Mexico? Why? While you were sleeping, video of the fight went viral. Our letter made it to Tumblr, and the media is having a field day. How did Deidre get a hold of that letter? You're supposed to destroy them after- I couldn't bear to part with them. The Japanese lettering is so exotic. Every sheet looks like a work of art. Scarlet pulls out a letter and shows it to him. Roman grabs the letter out of her hand. There's no better way to defeat the purpose of encoding letters than to decode them on the same goddamn piece of paper. I don't know how many times I could apolog apologize to you, Roman. You haven't apologized once yet. Well, I'm not going to start now. Roman grabs his phone off the nightstand and starts to scroll. We made the news. My face is plastered all over social media. There are pictures taken from... Inside this hotel room, Scarlet, what the hell is going on? We're taking control of the narrative. That's what's going on. Roman and Scarlet are about to become the new Bonnie and Clyde. I started new Twitter and Instagram handles because, of course, we've got 12,000 followers and counting. At the end of the day, this invasion of a private bond will turn into something beautiful. Something empowering. Something we could probably option for a number in the low to middle six figures if we're shrewd about it. My mother will broker the deal, don't worry. Was this your mother's idea? Did she orchestrate this whole plan? No. The Deidre situation was completely out of left field, but I'm improvising my tight little ass off here. Oh, God. It was this or college, Roman. I mean... Uh, so, my, my life, my... 
career are ruined and you want to ride this thing like a fucking Kardashian? Hey, quit your bitching. You're lucky I'm of age. They could have carted you off in handcuffs. Did you ever love me, Scarlet? Scarlet gives Roman a look, a cocktail of amusement and pity. You grew on me. You were an easy mark, Roman. Everything I built, everything I risked to become a teacher is gone. Please, you got a master's degree. I ripped off a crystal <laughs> meth dealer named Billy Joe and sold his, sta- his, and sold his stash to pay for that master's degree. I was hunted for two solid years. I had to change my whole identity. I had to hide. Scarlet, do people know where we are? Well, I put location pins in all my tweets and instas, and there are news cameras outside, so yes? Oh, God, he's going to come for me. Roman, dude, are you serious? That's perfect! Do you think he'll track you down? Now we definitely need to go to Mexico, like a cross-country run from the law and media and some whacked-out meth dealer. Oh, my God. Roman, this is amazing. You just gave the story exactly what it needs. What's that? A villain. Blackout. Scene three. Same day across town. Billy Joe sits in a dry bathtub, an iPad in his hand. He picks up his phone and dials a number. Lights up on Faye in curlers and a bathrobe. Her phone rings. She looks at the screen, groans, and answers it. Billy Joe, you bought out the last of my crystal two days ago, and Penny's got clipped by the heat for masturbating on the subway, so... Faye. (laughs) Faye, have you seen the news about the heiress and her teacher? Ugh, yes. I don't care how much money that family has. They're trash. Garbage. This what you call me about? I need your peace. Billy Joe, I wouldn't let you use my peace. I wouldn't trust you with a vacuum cleaner. Think I'm gonna loan you my peace? Fuck out of (laughs) here. Miss Thing, what did I say? Sit your ass down and finish your waffles. (laughs) Sorry, my grandbabies are here. (laughs) So why do you need my gun? The teacher. It's him. The one done ripped me off all them years ago. Okay. What's your plan? I'm gonna shoot him in the face. Uh, not with my piece, you're not. Faye, hear me out. This guy... Oh, spare me. I know the sob story. If I were you, I would have found him and I would have used his guts for Christmas tree garland. But it would have taken me seven hours to find him, not seven years. That's on you. Faye, he ruined my life. Oh, bullshit. So he ripped you off. So what? Mark took you in, didn't he? You two have lived like the fucking Bush twins all this time. <laughs> Traveling around the world, having your pick of the low lives and cum dump party bottoms that mill in and out of that palace you live in. <laughs> Spare me. Some of us have to work. I'm entitled to my revenge. You want your revenge? Be a man. Get close. Use your razor. Blackout. (laughs) Scene four. The hotel room later that day. Roman gathers his belongings. Billy Joe enters through the bathroom window. Once inside, he sees Roman, shuts off the light in the bathroom, and slams the door. Roman jumps. He crosses to the bathroom, opens the door, fumbles for a light switch. Fluorescent lights come on. Roman reaches for the switch and catches a glimpse of himself in a mirror. He stares at his reflection from the shadows of the bathroom. Mama used to call fluorescence truth lights. Every pore and line magnified. Every blemish and imperfection revealed. Look at you. You look the same. Even rode hard and put away wet, you look exactly the same. Billy Joe steps out of the shadows. Hello, Tyler. Or is it Roman now? 
Billy advances, wielding a straight razor. People know where I am. That's fine. No one and Karen ain't the same thing. They're making a real monster out of you in the news, Tyler. Scarlet's on her way. Good. I'm gonna need someone to pin this on. Billy Joe closes in, backing Roman up against the bathroom sink. When they're an arm's length distance away... Billy Joe, I I'm sorry. Billy Joe stops. I was desperate. It was only a matter of time before Mark swapped me out for a younger model, and when you rolled in from Indiana, shining like a brand new penny with that mountain of drugs, I just knew. You were there all of five minutes, and Mark just looked right through me after that. I, I was a goner. I was ready to leave with you. The moment I laid eyes on you, I was fixing to scoop you up and steal you away. How do you think Mark lured me into this shit heap of a city in the first place? It was you. The photos he sent, the videos he shot of you and all his pervy friends. How is Mark? He's good. He had a triple bypass on the account of all the tweak, but you know, he's trucking. <laughs> oh, good. That package was worth a hundred grand. That kind of scratch would have taken us a long way. Who did you sell my stash to? I sold it to Faye. She was expecting to buy from you, but it didn't matter to her. A package was a package. You did what now? Oh, that lying bitch. She swore you'd taken it and ran off to California. You laid your whole plan out and then left me alone with your car keys. I couldn't... I saw my chance and I took it. You made it so easy. Roman grabs a glass from the counter and shatters it on Billy Joe's face. Billy Joe reels back as Roman bolts for the door. Billy Joe grabs him by the belt. Oh, no you don't. Billy Joe slashes Roman's throat and watches him die. When it's over, he crosses to the bedroom and starts to rummage through Roman's belongings. Keys rattle in the door. Billy Joe steps into the shadows as Scarlet bursts in, carrying shopping bags and two pieces of luggage. Roman! We got Nancy Grace! It's only a mention, but it's a start. She's really dragging you through it, but it's fine. That's her shtick. The scandal is blowing up. My mom and I met up at, Sa at Saks. She slipped me 30 grand, her black card, and my Adderall, and that should be more than enough to get us to Mex. Scarlet goes to the bathroom. She stops at the sight of Roman's dead body. Oh... <laughs> In the bedroom, Billy Joe picks up the, the hotel phone and dials 911. Hi there. I'm calling from the Starlight Motel. I can't be sure, but I think there's a dead person in the room next door. Room 217. Right. Thanks. Send the police right away, please. Bye. Scarlet re-enters the bedroom area. You son of a bitch! We had a plan! Your generation. So detached. You didn't even scream. Catch. Billy Joe tosses Scarlet the razor. She catches it. You wanted scandal? Oh, you've got a real scorcher now. Blackout. Part two. Margot. Scene one. Dusk. A winter afternoon, a few days shy of Christmas. Lights up on a living room in a Bushwick brownstone. The place is equipped with outdated furnishings and electronics. There's also a bookcase. One shelf is overrun with Puerto Rico souvenirs and baubles. Another with Gone with the Wind memorabilia. Another with framed family photos, another with VHS tapes. Margot stands at the bookcase, eyeing the knickknacks and photos. On the coffee table, a briefcase, a thickly stuffed legal file, a notepad, and a pen are set. A garment bag is draped over one arm of the couch. A suitcase is set by the door. Ricky enters with two cups of coffee and an ashtray in the crook of his arm. Margot gestures toward the suitcase. Going somewhere? Puerto Rico. 
My cousin Jenny's getting married. Ugh, sorry. You got something against Puerto Rico? I don't feel one way or the other about Puerto Rico, but I detest weddings. Thank God for the open, open bar. bar though. Margo turns her attention back to the knickknacks. I see you found my mother's tribute to La Isla del Encanto. And Gone with the Wind. Margo points to a landscape painting of Terra, a farmhouse built atop a high mountain. A gorgeous lake shore is visible beyond the mountain. This looks nice. Where's this? That's Terra. My family's resort farm out in Puerto Rico. Ricky points at a spot in the painting. The wedding will be right there on the lake shore. Oh, that's stunning. Good fishing? I don't know. We're not fishing people. Margot sits, pen and notepad at the ready. My boat would be right at home there. Cooler a beer, bag of bait. You to get out there often? No. I stay here on the first floor and I rent the upstairs and basement apartments. We, we haven't renovated the whole place, but... Uh, no, this room has obviously gone untouched. I mean, sorry, but get a load of these couches. Couch condoms, we used to call these. It's charming. My grandmother covered everything in plastic. May she rest. I keep the apartment this way because technically this is still, this is the way my mother wants it. We renovated the rest of the place. We had to. So you could upcharge for the gentrifiers? Something like that. Bushwick has changed. I brought my mace. Oh, no need for that. Not anymore. I mean, not that I'm sad about it. It's just, I rent the upstairs apartment to a banker and the basement to a girl who plays ukulele in a jug band. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you sit? Oh, sure. Ricky sits in a chair across from her. His knee bounces at a steady clip. We should get started. Spell your name for me. R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-M-A-O-S. Got it. Ricky Ramos, short for? Just Ricky. And you are a sanitation worker for the city, yes? I am, just like my pops. And your mother? She runs the resort farm full-time. They're semi-retired. Any siblings? One, Ray. We call him Poochie. He's married with a son. Okay, great. Do you do any other kind of work? I volunteer at La Fontaña. That's a community center with an after-school program here in Bushwick. They specialize in youth enrichment, tutoring, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah? What do you do there? I'm in the athletic division. Are you nervous? Your leg's going about a mile a minute. I drank a gallon of coffee before you rolled up. And yeah, a little. How long you been with St. James? I'm not with St. James. I'm sorry, I thought I... I'm not with the school or the diocese. I'm with a third-party firm hired by the school to investigate the matter at hand. Here. Margot hands Ricky a card. He looks at it, nods. Lopez and Lebrecht. Margot Lebrecht, agent. Smell you. Thank you for agreeing to see me. I... Hold on a sec. I just... Ricky removes an iPod touch from his breast pocket, taps the screen, and puts it down on the coffee table. Sorry. Go ahead. Ricky, I've been hired by St. James High School to sort out the allegations of child molestation leveled against John Rockford. You were named as a victim, so here I am. The firm's background, so that you know, my parents each spent 10 years with the FBI, where they started a task force dedicated to cracking down on the sexual exploitation of children before they left to start their own firm. And that, that's a completely different world. When you see the harm that comes to young children that are taken captive and forced into certain types of behavior, that ruins a kid for, for life. 
My parents have been partners in their own private investigation firm for over 10 years now. When I finished law school, I did some work with DHS. What's that? The Department for Homeland Security. I worked with them for a time before I decided to join my parents in the private sector. Now, I know this is a very unpleasant matter, so I appreciate your willingness to share what happened to you. Thank you for coming forward. I didn't come forward. I was dragged into this by my ear. Principal McMillan said you called her. I did, but I... You know, a week ago, I woke up to a Facebook message. Here's what it said. Ricky reads a message off his phone. Ricky, I initiated contact with St. James concerning John Rockford. I gave them your name and told them that he molested you the year he started teaching. I sincerely hope you'll reach out to Principal McMillan about this. I hope you're well. Hector Reyes. That was it. No heads up, no nothing. I hope you're well. Wow. I'm sorry your involvement in this matter was so abrupt. I can't remember the last time I even saw Hector. It was at an AA meeting, he said, this past August. Right. Yeah, I gave the AA thing a shot. It's not for me. How is he? Who, Hector? No, John. I haven't met him. To my knowledge, John doesn't know that I exist or that any of this is happening. We prefer to keep it that way until we bring the findings of our investigation to the school. Is there going to be a trial? Because I don't want to be a poster boy for anything. That's to be determined. Ricky leans forward to check out Margot's file folder. She closes it. I'm glad you're here. Because you need to hear it from me. From the source. Molestation? Child sexual abuse? That's not what we're dealing with here. I could see if Hector was actually involved. But he and John never had any kind of anything. So for Hector to roll up into the principal's office and start snitching on people about some shit that ain't even his business? I mean, who does that? Hector's concern for the well-being of the students at Yo, age. Hector Reyes is a drug addict and an 18-karat botinchero. He'd rather go around stirring the shit, rooting around in other people's lives before looking at his own, you know what I mean? Hector claims to be sober. He seems well. Yeah, any come mierda could just sit in a meeting and come out the neck spouting about uh, how well they're doing and then go home and knock back a case of corona behind closed doors. You don't know. If he's so caught up in that 12-step bullshit, he'd know to stay in his lane and focus on what's on his side of the street. Right. You brought an ashtray. Can I smoke in here? Yeah, yeah, let me just... Ricky crosses to a window and opens it. Margot pulls out a pack of Newports, removes a cigarette from it. She fishes around for a light. I swear I had a lighter in my pocket. I got you, hang on. No, I'm sure I had a lighter when I walked in here. Ricky leaves the room. Margot goes fishing around between the couch cushions. She pulls out a glittery makeup purse with cartoon princesses emblazoned on it. She looks at it queerly, then shoves it between the cushions. She digs deeper into the cushions and pulls out a Barbie doll. She looks off in the direction of the kitchen, wheels turning. I bought a big barbecue lighter so I wouldn't lose it. And of course, ah, here we go. Margot puts the Barbie doll back between the couch cushions as Ricky returns with a barbecue lighter. He lights her cigarette. Hector stated, and you confirmed to Principal McMillan, that you and John were involved in a sexual relationship. I don't relationship. think I want to do this. Not without a lawyer. Ricky, for all intents and purposes, I am your lawyer. I'm representing the good side here. I'm recording this on my iPod Touch. Every word. So you know. Okay. I don't want you twisting anything I say. I already said too much to Principal McMillan. Ricky, why did you say anything to Principal McMillan at all? Why am I here? Why, why did you agree to meet? I... I thought I'd get in trouble if I didn't.
Why would you think you'd be in trouble? It's just... reflex. I didn't exactly leave St. James on good terms. Look, at the end of the day, I don't want someone else's version of my story being the only one on the table, you feel me? That's why you're here. Okay then, let's hear it. How old were you when John molested He didn't you? molest me, stop saying that! How old were you? I was a freshman. How old were you? Almost 15. Yeah, but 15 in Brooklyn years is like 23 anywhere else. <laughs> City kids all seem to think that. Would you carry on a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old that you work with at La Fontana? Fuck no. Do you know what the age of consent is in New York? Yes, I'm not an idiot. Okay, so however gray that area might be from certain perspectives, from a legal standpoint, you and John, that's considered statutory rape. I shouldn't have to draw a diagram for Okay, you. so there you have it. It happened. I was underage. You heard it from me. You're free to go now. I thought you wanted me to hear your side of the story. You're just gonna boil it down to the legalities anyway, right? You got what you need. They'll just start throwing out hush money the way the church always does. Principal McMillan is new school. She's very serious about rectifying the situation. Please sit. Let's continue. Ricky sits. So, when did you know you were gay? I don't really go in for labels, but... I mean... I guess since I was 12, maybe? When did you know you were gay? I'm not gay. <laughs> You, you fish. <laughs> With my husband and my parents. Oh, I'm sorry. Not, you got this Jodie Foster thing going. Not, in a good way, she's dope. Silence of the Lambs, yo. You just seem tough. We all need our assumptions challenged every now and then. So freshman year, John? Fall, 1998. John's first year at St. James. I met him in the cafeteria. He was trying to add hot chocolate powder to his coffee and making a big mess. You have to mix the chocolate powder with hot milk, then add it to the coffee. Exactly. A anyway, later that week, I was passing the science lab on my way to track practice after school, and I heard a garbage song. Love him. Me too. <laughs> I didn't know the song, so I peeked in to see who was listening to it, and I saw him there. Turns out it was a B-side. Like the pavement? No, nah, it was a song called 13. That's actually a big star cover. Right. That's what he said. You know your shit. I may or may not have been a fixture at Hot Topic when I was a teenager. <laughs> so, like the Pied Piper, he lured you with music. I don't think he was hatching a plot, but yeah, whatever. We got to talking about bands we both liked, and he tried to recruit me for the science club, and I caved. By then, it got late, and he offered to drive me home. Okay, so you bonded over music, you joined the science club. And I thought John was hot. Dios santo. That man could fill out a pair of khakis. Ricky smiles, Marco doesn't. Any other extra extracurriculars? Science club and track in the fall. Spring was drama club. We did West Side Story. They made me a jet because I could sing. I was baby John on the count of how little I was. You were little. 
You looked extremely young in your yearbook photo that year. Margot opens her file and pulls out a Xerox of a yearbook photo of Ricky. She places it on the table for Ricky to see. The sight of it makes him squirm. How did things proceed with the relationship? Well, there was science club, and he drove me home almost every day. He lived in Queens, and Bushwick was on the way. Bushwick is kind of far from St. James by subway, but by car it was quicker, even with traffic. Did anyone know he was driving you home? No. I'd meet him a few blocks away, under the Belt Parkway. Did that not set off any alarms for you? That you two had to meet off school grounds to go home together? No. I preferred it that way. I didn't want to attract any attention to myself. Whose attention? Students? Faculty? Both. I didn't mix well with a lot of people there. Not even in drama club? No relief there? There weren't any other people like you? Look, it was the 90s. We didn't have glee, okay? <laughs> there was no, it gets better. Around here, it was, it gets better, but until then, learn to throw hands. It's still that way for some kids, even now. Messages like that don't always reach communities like this. And since Trump, it's only getting worse. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah? Where are you from? I grew up in Manhasset, Long Island. Was it rough out there in the streets of Manhasset? <laughs> Margot sizes Ricky up. You know, it was my dad, my uncle, my brothers and I. We were out on my dad's boat. Perfect day on the sound. We were sitting there eating burgers and franks and my uncle, who was a world-class drunk, he said, if any of you turns out to be a queer, you can call me. You can come to me. I love you. You're my blood. I'll do the right thing. I'll understand. I'll come right over with my gun, and you can blow your brains out. That goes for you too, Margo. I was nine. That's cold. Did your brothers turn out to be gay? No. Well, we'll never know about Reggie. He passed. Iraq. Ouch. I know. My father was furious. He'd done a tour in Vietnam, and so his objection was, you know, I didn't put my kids through college so they could go off and get blown up. That's real? Yeah. Reggie was very puffy-chested about it when he enlisted. I suspected it all might have been posturing to, you know, throw off the scent. He wasn't really around long enough for us to... <laughs> I apologize. This is supposed to be about you. I'm sorry. When did John come out to you? Ricky puts his hand on Margot's. I'm sorry. If I lost my brother, I'd be crushed. Thank you, Ricky. When did John come out to you? I told him first. On our third or fourth ride home. I said I had crushes on girls and boys. He told me he could relate. When? Around Halloween. Okay, so these car rides, when you talked, did he ever coach you or give you pointers on sex? Or... No. We listened to CDs. If the traffic was working in our favor, we'd have time to listen to an entire album on the ride home. We went all over the map. Blondie, Biggie, Bowie, Bjork, Radiohead, Talking Heads, Nina Simone, Echo and the Bunnymen. Every day after school, we'd drive home and talk about music, fight about music. I fell in love with him sitting there in traffic on the BQE. My favorite stretch was that sweet spot under the promenade after Atlantic Avenue, but before Brooklyn Bridge, I could just see him. The sun setting behind him, 
a blood orange sky bathing his face in the river and the skyline in red. The towers, back when there were two of them, not just this one bootleg disgrace of a freedom tower. When did your relationship become sexual? Somewhere around track 10 of OK Computer. No surprises. It was the last day of school before Christmas break. As we pulled off the Metropolitan Avenue exit, I kind of lost it. Because our schedules were going to change in the new year, so there wouldn't be any more car rides. He scratched the back of my neck, and I leaned into his hand. After I pulled it together, he took my face in his hands, and he kissed me on the side of the road for a half hour. That was my first kiss, ever, by the light of the dashboard. We fogged up the car windows real good. OK, computer in the stereo, it was. Ricky stares at the floor for a moment. When he looks up, he's smiling, miles away. Did he take you somewhere that night? He took me home. He only ever drove me home. There's nothing more noble than that, I think. When it's cold, when the days are dark and someone extends the kindness of making sure you get home safe. How'd you two maintain a relationship after the car ride stopped? After Christmas break, we'd find deserted corners in the school. Confessional booths, catwalks above the stage, the boiler room. And when you'd meet up? We'd fuck around, you know. On school grounds. Did he ever take you to his house, motels? Never. That was part of the appeal for me. Having it all play out under everyone's noses, feeling the charge as I passed him in the halls, sneaking around, being made to wait. It went on that way for months. Margot pauses to make a note. While you're scratching all this down, don't forget to mention that I fell eight feet tall. I could look at people in the face. When they called me a faggot and I passed them in the halls, I just smiled and flipped them the bird. I developed a spine. I had a secret. I had love. Sounds like you had a lot of sex in semi-public places, if that's what amounts to love. We shared more than that. He made me a set of mixtapes. Of course he did. Each one covered a different period in his life. There was one tape for the time he was coming out, a tape each year he was in college, one tape for the guy who swallowed him up, took advantage of him. I mean, really took advantage. Wait a minute, was John molested too? No. Did he tell you? What, no, molested? Fuck, you're like obsessed. He fell in with this guy named Mark. He was a bad guy. He got John mixed up in drugs Was and... John dealing or was he just using? If you want to know that, you can ask him. Anyway, these mixtapes he made, it came with liner notes that he wrote in code. The notes broke down each song's significance to him. We coded our letters, too. Wasn't that a big pain in the ass? Writing out letters in Japanese? Yeah, but we didn't mind. I made the mistake of decoding all the notes and letters on the same page, so... Wait. What? We didn't code our letters in Japanese. Our code was numerical. Ricky sits back, uncomfortable. Did you read the story I wrote? Yeah. How did you even find that? I wrote that under a pen name. You were taxed for the award. You looked into my taxes? Is that even legal? Oh, completely. When you file your taxes with storefront companies like H&R Block, you sign away your privacy. 
They can sell your tax information. Oh. Well, what'd you think? It was telling. I got to the part where the teacher gets his throat slashed. How does it end? Scarlet convinces Billy to run away with him, natural born killer style. Shit really goes left after that. Ah. Do you write a lot? What else do you have on me? What else is there to be had on you? Nothing. Margot, are you investigating me or? I'm just thorough. So, you're fucking around in boiler rooms, writing each other love letters in numerical code. How'd it end? Feeling violated, Ricky shuts down. Did it end when you were expelled from St. James, or? I wasn't expelled. It was disciplinary probation. I stand corrected. A standoff of sorts. Margot waits for an explanation. When Ricky doesn't volunteer one, she looks down at her notes. What happened? You've read the records. I'm sure you already know. The records say that you assaulted another student, leveled threats. I didn't level any fucking threats. Well then? I wrote John a letter in plain English. No codes, plain English. It was addressed to John, which could have been anyone, but it was signed by me. It must have slipped out of my pocket. A senior found it, Will Gillen. By sixth period, it got Xeroxed and circulated around the entire school. There was no containing the situation, so I did what I had to do. You broke his nose and his arm with a desk and pushed him through a window. We were on the first floors. Still? <laughs> Still, the window was closed. Does it say in the records that Will Gillen broke my jaw? That I had to eat my meals through a straw until summer? No, it doesn't. After the fight, I finished the year from home. We couldn't... I never saw John after that. Did he try to step in during the fight? To help or intervene on your behalf? No. And you never saw him again after that? You didn't meet anywhere in the city or... No. I was banned from school grounds. That lines up. They said you threatened to retaliate. That's bullshit. My jaw was broken. I could barely say my own name, let alone start tossing threats around. The records say... That was April 1999. Does that date mean anything to you? Columbine. Right. The Columbine shooting went down a week before. And when I fought Will Gillen, the faculty looked at me and saw a moody kid who always wore band t-shirts on casual Fridays. I might have had Marilyn Manson patch sewn on my backpack. And that was all it took for them to close the book on me. Really? Yeah. The principal, it was Dr. Forgione back then, not McMillan. He gave my mother a copy of the letter. That's how she found out I was gay. What did your parents have to say about it? Well, my dad didn't have much to say on the gay stuff. He was glad I got a few shots in. My mother, she went through my shit and found John's mixtapes, the letters he wrote me. Did she read them? Yeah. So John Rockford made mixtapes for every formative period in his life and annotated them with liner notes and your mother never figured out you were involved with an adult? I think she was too busy flipping out over the fact that I'd been with a guy to get caught up in the details. I finished my schoolwork from home. For all intents and purposes, I was put on house arrest. 
When the school year was over, my mother dragged me down to Terra. Terra? The farm in Puerto Rico. Right. I spent the summer mixing concrete for the first guest cottage my mom built. Some people think you can pray the gay away. My mother thought isolation and manual labor would do the trick. Watch. That's how it'll end for us homos if Pence gets his way. I hope they'll let me bring my own jammies to the gay labor camp. I doubt it'll come to that. I don't. Who'd you vote for? That's private. <laughs> You'll tell me about your crazy gun-toting uncle, but not who you voted for? Say no more. I... I left the president field blank. Ah, copy that. What happens now? We're going to continue our investigation, compile statements. How many more do you have to take? That's private. We'll report our findings to the school after the holiday and proceed from there. But he hasn't been fired yet? No. Ricky, are you seeing anyone now? Romantically or professionally? Both. I'm single. No shrink. You're not still hung up on John, are you? No. But you remember the relationship fondly. More or less. Some closure would have been nice. Well, in a sense, you got closure. I mean, the teacher character dies in the story you wrote. That piece isn't really about him. Isn't it? Roman is a guy who escaped a toxic, drug-fueled relationship with a guy named Mark, just like John, and he becomes a teacher who gets involved It's with fiction, a pulpy little thing. It's like Tarantino or Wild Things. Real life didn't play out the way it did in that piece. No, it didn't. When your letters got spread around, John got away with it and he left you holding the bag. Margot thinks, her eyes drilling into Ricky. He squirms. What? The story... Something about it rubbed me the wrong way. And up until now, I couldn't figure it out. Its sympathy lies with the predator. From your perspective, the victim in the equation is Roman. You went out of your way to make the student-teacher relationship legal, and the student is a bratty, spoiled, exploitative girl, which, I mean, is that the way you see yourself? No, I'm not in that story at all. It's not about me. Scarlet was an heiress. It was meant to, as a shot at the whole reality TV industry, getting famous for nothing or for being a hoe. I don't see the issue. I don't think you have any sense of your actual role in this situation, and that to me is troubling. Why is it so important that I see it the way you do? Why do I have to fuck up the only bright spot in the shittiest time of my life for- Well, for one thing, you work with kids in your downtime. Have you no sense of how warped it is that this guy, who was nearly ten years your senior, pursued and carried out a sexual relationship with you? It's troubling, yeah. And frankly, it might even make you a danger to the children you find in your care. I am not a danger to the children in La Fontaine. Do they know you're gay? I don't talk about that with them or anybody. If they know, they know. I'm not cartwheeling down Graham Avenue in hot pants and a wig or anything. I just... People know. And you don't discuss, discuss it with the kids? No. And even if I did, being gay and being a pedophile aren't the same fucking thing the last I checked. I know that. You said your brother has a kid, a son? Yeah. Who I love. I wouldn't harm a hair on his head. Okay. Do you ever host kids from the program here in this house? No, why would I? Do you wear makeup, Ricky? Do you play with dolls? Are you fucking kidding me right now? No! Margot pulls the makeup case and the doll out from between the cushions. So, 
You just have a young girl's makeup case and a Barbie doll wedge between the cushions of your couch because... Those have been there for ages. They belong to my daughter. I'm sorry. You have a daughter? You checked my taxes, Margot. Did you miss the part where I claimed her as a dependent? She has a room in this apartment for when she visits me. If you don't believe me... Ricky points off stage at a bedroom. Margot looks off in that direction. She gets up and walks over to a doorway and peers in. She looks back at him. When did you... Who did you have a kid with? The summer I was sent away to Puerto Rico. One of the old hibaras out there had a daughter, Marisol. She'd come over to Terra and watch old kung fu movies with me. We fucked up, had an accidental baby. I thought my mother would hit the ceiling. She had me when she was a teenager, so I thought, you know, making the same mistake would piss her off, but... She thought you'd been straightened out. More or less, yeah. Hmm. We kept the baby. We named her Tara after the farm she was conceived on. Where's your daughter now? She's in Puerto Rico for the wedding. Ricky pulls a framed photo of his daughter from the shelf and places it on the coffee table before Margot. I can see the resemblance. Margot pulls the Xeroxed yearbook photo of Ricky from her file. She looks down at them, then shows Ricky the picture side by side. Can you see it? Can't you see what needs guarding, protection? If you can't see it in yourself, can you see it in your kid? I see it in you both, I do. Ricky takes the photos and looks at them. It's not the same thing. I'm a guy, guys... I'm not gonna play dumb to the fact that teenagers have urges and desires, I get that. But the adult in the equation bears the responsibility of not crossing that boundary. It happened over time. It's not like he jumped out of a bush and attacked me. Margot throws down her pen, growing impatient. How do you think predators work, Ricky? Jesus! He taught at your school he had to bide his time! And you were alienated from your peers. You came from a troubled family with homophobic, potentially abusive parents. My family wasn't troubled. The files from the guidance department would indicate otherwise. There are notes about visible bruising on your face. You had a meltdown in October of your freshman year. Maybe had you been born into a different... to people a little more... What? Nothing. Never mind. No, say it. Maybe if my parents were Park Slope yuppies, I'd be cool? You grew up sailing on the Long Island Sound, and your family was just as fucked up as mine on the subject of being gay. So there goes your theory. I'm just saying, were your home life more stable, you wouldn't have been such an easy target. What the fuck am I supposed to do with that? What sense is there in which... Or wondering what it'd be like if I'd been born into a... Dif into a family that... Could love you for who you are? My family loves me. I'm not questioning that. Aren't you? Because that's what it sounds no, like. No, I'm... I'm sorry, but your mother was too concerned with punishing you for the fact that you were gay to look closer at your own written evidence to see exactly that what they were dealing with, that you were being preyed upon by- What difference does it make? For fuck's sake, it's the difference between making one visit like this and making a dozen! Eleven other kids were named. No, I didn't s <sighs> Should that matter? Does that matter? Whether there were 20 or 200 or just one, we know it happened and we have to pursue it. Margot starts to gather her things. She stops and looks at Ricky. You know, the thing about abuse victims, 
The abuse ends eventually, but the behavior is learned. The abused just pick up right where their abusers leave off and they take over, putting themselves through all manner of self-ruin. I am not ruining myself. I'm serving my community. I'm making a good wage, like you, you said. You still live in the house where you were forced to squash who you were. And you smell like a still. I can only imagine how much you had to drink before I showed up. We've been sitting here a half hour, and the only time I saw you really smile wasn't when you mentioned your daughter. It wasn't when you brought up the work you're doing for the kids in this community. It was when you started waxing nostalgic about a relationship you had with a pedophile. You need to wake up. Margot starts to pack away her file when Ricky grabs it. She stands up, tries to get it from him. He holds out an arm while he scans the top sheet. Ricky, that is confidential. Confidential bullshit. You want to convince me? Show me. Ricky, stop it. Give me the file. She grabs at the file. Its contents spill on the floor. Ricky looks down, a nauseous pause. He kneels down and picks up a photocopy of a yearbook photo. A boy. Another. Another. Ricky lays out the Xerox pages. Eleven different smiling faces stare up at him. They all have some version of the same story. Each one had a thing he bonded with them over. Music, comic books, New York history, Pokemon, dinosaurs, abandoned subway stations, back to the fucking future. This is what I think happens. Pedophiles generally are attracted to the shape of an individual's body. Some pedophiles are attracted to the shape of a child who's one, two, three years old. Some are attracted to kids who are a little older. It's the reason why some kids, when they're kidnapped and when they wind up in a pedophile's environment, they get passed on when their bodies mature, when the attraction is gone. I think with a predator like John, this is his type. You are his type. You were his first. Look at these kids. They could all be your siblings. And I'm not just talking about the resemblance. You were all lonely, alienated kids straying from the center of the pack. Easily accessible. Ricky takes the Xerox pictures from the scattered paperwork. He assembles them in a stack. He gathers the rest of the papers and hands them to Margot. Get out. Okay, but I can't leave without the photos, Ricky. I said get out of my house. Ricky and Margot stand, eyes locked. Ricky grabs the bookcase and shoves it to the floor. Keepsakes, videotapes, and photos sh uh, shatter on the floor between them. Get out! Margot starts for the door. She pauses at the threshold. You have my card. If ever you need a referral for a professional, please feel free to contact me. Think about what I said. Margot leaves. Ricky stares down at the mess on the floor, then looks at the framed photo of his daughter and had his own yearbook photo. He exits the room. Off stage, he audibly vomits. He re-enters, taking massive swigs from a bottle of rum. He pulls out his cell phone and starts a call. St. James High School. Hi. I'm trying to reach John Rockford. I'm sorry, I think he left for the day. Could you try his line, please? <laughs> sure. Ricky waits, hold music plays. Ricky paces, then. John Rockford here. Uh, hi, John. It's Ricky Ramos. Uh, I'm sorry, who? It's, um, Ricky? I, uh, we were... Oh, my God, Ricky. I, I, I'm sorry. Of course, pardon me. It's been uh, a scramble to get a bunch of grading in here before Christmas. I'm just fried. How are you? Not great. We need to talk. We do. It's been, uh... Ages. 
How have you... They're coming for you, John. What? Dead air, then blackout. Never criticize my love, my love. You could leave me alone, but you'll always be at home with my love, my love. And I won't feel a thing so that I can bring you back to my love my love no I won't hurt and I won't cry for you I put that all aside yes I will hope and I will pray that maybe you'll grow up soon someday. You're afraid and unsure. You make me feel like a whore with my love. My love. And you push me aside. And you laugh at my pride in my love, my love. Yeah, you loathe my life and yet hate my tears. I'm sorry there are cracks in these old veneers. I'll stitch it up so later it splits in twain So neatly you'll never see the pain No, you'll never know I think you already know I wish I knew I think you already know I wish I knew I think you already know I wish I Completely 
I guess that's what happens when you lie about your love. Part three, Tara. Scene one, the next day, a sweltering afternoon on Lake Oaxaca, Puerto Rico. Ricky smokes and nurses a pint of rum on the front patio of the farmhouse. He looks like shit. Off stage, a car pulls up and idles. The slam of a car door is heard and the car pulls away. John enters, pulling a suitcase behind him. Ricky pitches his cigarette and crosses to meet him. Hello there. You came. Of course. Hi. That's crazy. You came. They stand face to face for an awkward moment. John breaks the tension, coming in for a hug. Ricky hugs him back for a moment before looking over his shoulder, self-conscious. You're late. Did you get lost? Cell phones always crap out when you start up into the mountains. Yeah, I stopped at the airport to make a few calls and to grab a bite to eat before getting in a cab. Driver knew exactly where to go. Apparently this is a popular spot. Yeah. My mother's done well for herself here. She's inside watching movies, staying out of the heat. I look forward to meeting her. Fair warning. She's pissed. There's a wedding here in a couple of days, and I didn't RSVP with the guest. I'll, I'll stay out of the way, not to worry. We chartered a boat to go to the Vieques. We're going to camp out near the Bioluminous and Bay overnight. Tomorrow's the rehearsal dinner and the wedding's on Christmas Day, so it'll be a little hectic here. We'll find time when we can. How was your flight? Smooth. When did you get in? This morning. I was up at the crack of dawn. Uh, you must be wiped out. I am. I didn't sleep at all last night. No, neither did I. I was excited to see you. You look the same. No, I don't. I've gained about 30 pounds. I'm going gray. How old are you now? Not old enough for grays. Oh, they suit you. Thanks. You've got my cottage in the back of the property. It's the most private. Do you want to? Tara enters from the house, shell-shocked, holding a Gone with the Wind VHS sleeve in her hand. She joins John and Ricky. I don't even... I can't. I cannot. What the F did I just watch? Dad, have you ever seen this movie? No. Who are you? Tara. <laughs> Tara, this is Mr. Rockford. Uh, call me John. Hi. Nice to meet you. This is my daughter, Tara. Oh. Wow, hi, hi. I've heard uh, so much about you. Awilda enters from the house. Ay, Dios santo, I love that movie. <laughs> oh. Oh, you must be the friend. <laughs> Mom, John. John, this is my mother, Awilda. That's a beautiful name. I think it sounds like an intestinal ailment, but thank you. <laughs> Ricky, did you get the cottage ready for him? Yes. Good. Uh, Ricky, you're sleeping in the main house. John, you've got Ricky's cottage. I would have done a better job of cleaning, but there's a wedding and I have a bigger problems to... It's fine. <laughs> it's ready. Relax. It's going to be crowded with family here on the mountain. If you were hoping for some peace and quiet, lo siento por ti. That's fine. 
Um, Abuela, we need to talk about this movie. Look, Tara, I love you, pero por favor, no empieza with the debating. Relax. Go eat a mango or comb your hair. <laughs> I don't want a mango, and with this humidity, I've pretty much just given up on my hair. Well then, make yourself useful and see if Claire and the men need help setting up the tent and the chairs for the wedding. They're finished. Ah, pues, ¿dónde están? Drinking a cuckoo's with daddy. Your father's supposed to slaughter one of the hogs. I didn't know it was my turn to babysit him. Did I say you were supposed to babysit him? Mira, if you're going to be moody, you can go back to Bushwick. Abuela, would you be down with a movie about a spunky Nazi girl trying to make her way in post-World War II Germany? Because we just watched the American equivalent. It's called Gone with the Wind. It's a wartime romance. About the people who were on the wrong side of the war. This one's got it all. Happy slaves, sexual violence, the Klan. Dad, do you know the Klan was in this movie? They call them freedom fighters on some alt-right shit. Bedsheet-wearing, cousin-humping punk bitches. She's, uh, she's absolutely right. It's, it's a very problematic movie. Awila throws John a withering glare. Don't. Just don't. Tara, Tara holds up the tape sleeve. So this image, Rhett in his white shirt, Scarlet in the red dress that falls off the shoulders, these are the costumes they're wearing in the scene where Rhett calls Scarlet out for being sprung on her cousin's man. Did I mention Scarlet O'Hara was a trifling hoe? Anyway, Scarlet and Rhett fight. She heaves, her, she heaves her bosom and clutches the drapes and eventually runs off. Rhett chases her down and basically shoves his tongue down her throat. She tries to fight him off and he says, this one night, you're not gonna turn me out. And then he basically drags her up the stairs, and somewhere in Hollywood, some genius watched this movie and thought, there's the shot we'll use for the poster. <laughs> they changed it for the Blu-ray. <laughs> rape, marital rape. And in the next scene, Scarlett's lying in bed, beaming like she just got dicked down, multiple O's. <laughs> Awilda removes one of her flip-flops and throws it at Tara, who dodges it. Watch your mouth in my house, puñeta, and stop dodging my chancleta. And the worst part of it all, the parts that really chaps my ass, you name this farm after a cotton plantation. Dad, you name me after a fictional slave-run cotton plantation. All right, calm down. So are you saying I'm stupid? No, that's not... Grandma, I don't think you're stupid. Ah, uh, just... yeah. Your grandma's just a pendeja for liking a movie about a woman who gets dealt a shitty lot in life and goes for hers. I must be a Nazi if I can relate to a woman who takes the nothing her men left behind and builds something with it. Okay, I see how it is. The revenue from the rental cottages we build on this farm is being funneled into colleges for funds for you and your cousin. But since I'm so stupid, I guess I can give your chair for charity. If I'm so stupid, you can spend Christmas with your mother. Ah, eat her cooking, sleep in her beds. Did I say stupid? Did the word even come out of my mouth? Awilda crosses towards the house, but Tara blocks her path. Stop. We're talking. Awilda, come on. It's, it's a well-made movie. Its perspectives are problematic, but you're not stupid for liking it. You just come at it with a, a simpler perspective. Simple. So now I'm simple. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead, Tara. Don't call me that. I'm changing my name. Uh, get out of my way. I have to go work, work to do. Abuela, 
I love you. Can we hug it out? Awilda grabs Tara by the arm and roughly shoves her aside, exiting into the house. Tara examines her arm. Ow! She fucked. Yo, her nails? She drew blood, Dad. Let me see. Ricky examines her arm. I'll talk to her. Your father used to get it worse than that when he was your age. How do you know that? Oh, Ricky and I go way back. Ricky throws John a forbidding look. John falls silent. Tara sits, dabbing at her fresh scratches with a paper towel. Ricky starts to exit into the house. He hesitates when he hears Awilda flying into a rage, screaming in Spanish and slamming cabinets inside. <laughs> with the, when the commotion subsides, everyone relaxes. John stares at them. I think Awilda might be bipolar. That's not funny. I wasn't joking. My God, it's uncanny. I, I look at you... And I see your father so clearly. It's, it's lovely. Not just your looks, but your passion, your propensity to flip things over until you've seen every side. Ricky and Tara smile, both uncomfortable for different reasons. What grade are you in? I'm a sophomore. So what are the sophomores listening to these days? I like Lord, Kendrick, Lana Del Rey, Sleigh Bells, Beach House. What about the Beebs? One Direction? I was raised better than that. Awilda enters. John, if you're eating here, there's Robbie's too, arroz con pollo, pernil, and pasteles. Uh, do all those have meat in them? Did you bring a vegetarian to my house? <laughs> it's, it's Christmas time, I'll make the exception. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> you're in the last cottage on the left. I have some calls to make. Where can I get cell service? We have cell boosters up here. The password is on a card in your cottage. I'll take them. Excuse me. You came here to spend time with your family. Hmm? Because she's right here. I'll take him. John, let's go. John hesitates. I don't have all day. John exits with her. What's up with you? Huh? You look like you're going to be sick. I'm jet lagged. Daddy, Brooklyn and Puerto Rico are in the same time zone. I mean, I'm just tired. I never sleep before I fly. Neither do I. Hey, you, you ever notice how whenever a flight's full of Latinos, people clap when the plane lands? <laughs> I noticed that when... It's kind of funny. Abuelo made me eat rabbit stew yesterday. It was good. Almost like chicken. Almost. Stew in 90 degree heat? Not gonna lie though, I had two bowls of that ish. It was mad tasty. Good. I'm glad. Tara takes the bottle from Ricky. I'm going to grab us a Malta. There's too much sugar in that shit. Drink water. The water here tastes funny. That's because it's clean. Aloe juice, a compromise. Fine. Bring me some. Tara exits into the house. Awilda enters. Where did you pick him up from? I know him from La Fontaña. He doesn't work at La Fontaña. Awilda skulks toward the house. Mom? What? Don't put your hands on my kid. I didn't lay a finger on her. Just now, you dug your nails into her arm. Awilda and Ricky stare each other down for a moment. What? Tell her to have more manners. Awilda exits into the house. Ricky sits alone for a moment. Claire enters, carrying a garment bag. Are you Ricky? Yeah. I'm Jennifer's fiance. I think we're about to become cousins. Hola, mucho gusto. <laughs> Come here, bring it in. Ricky and Claire hug. <laughs>
It's so nice to finally meet you. Jenny was so excited when she got your RSVP in the mail. She, in the mail, she speaks very highly of you. She says you're always the cool cousin. I don't know about all that. Awilda enters. Mujer, ven acá. Did you bring the pants? Yes. Uh, they need to be hemmed, and the uh, the seat needs to be let out a little. Ricky, bring me my box and show Claire what she can change. Ricky and Claire exit into the house. Moments later, Tara enters, carrying two glasses of juice. Abuela, should I start making the centerpieces? I'm not talking to you. <laughs> there was that one part I liked, where Scarlett pulls the radish out of the ground and eats it raw, and, and she stands up like a badass, boss-ass bitch, and she goes on that tear about how she'll never be hungry again. The music, her silhouette, the dead tree, the, the purple sky. For a second, you almost forget what she is. That's my favorite part in the whole movie. Mine too, hands down. It was breathtaking. I know, right? I, I still, I have feelings about my name. Well, feelings are in facts. Ricky re-enters with a cookie tin full of sewing implements. Claire enters dressed in a suit, her pants open and unzipped. He watches as his mother makes alterations. Ay, que handsome! I think it's so badass that you're wearing a suit to your wedding, Claire. This is just for the rehearsal dinner. We're both wearing dresses for the wedding. Awilda, I'm wearing a gorgeous pair of two-tone wingtips from Kolhan. I was thinking maybe we cuff the pants up past the ankle to show them off. You want to make them high waters? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, flower girl, you're ready? Oh, hell yeah. I was thinking, I know you wanted rose petals, but there are some really beautiful orchids growing out back. I think maybe we could mix them up. Did I say you could pick orchids my orchids? Orchids might clash with the color scheme. But they're white. Those orchids have spots. Right, but I thought... Claire smiles a chilly, serene smile. Rose petals. <laughs> Rose petals, okay. I heard Tito practicing for the wedding. He's a mean salsero. Ah, don't gas him up his head. He only plays a guido. Jenny gave me some salsa lessons before we left. We're ready. Which one of you is going to lead? We take turns. Tara, I hope you brushed up on your salsa dancing. Psh, essa. She takes after her father. She only likes white people music. And she doesn't even speak Spanish. That's okay, Tara. Spanish is the language of the colonizers who raped and brutalized this lush island. Oh. Tearing it from the clutches of the Taino, who were the indigenous tribe here before they were ravaged and wiped out by exotic European venereal diseases. <laughs> Speak whatever language you like. Awilda glares up at Claire. A sense of culture and history couldn't hurt. Of course not. But history doesn't end where you stop looking. It goes further back than that. So, Ricky, did you bring a date to this shindig? No. No, he brought a friend. He's not coming to the wedding. ¿Y por qué no? What, now you want him there? Make up your mind. No worries. The guest list is stacked with a few eligible bachelors. Awilda sours at this remark. Ricky musters a vacant ghost of a smile, but says nothing. Claire looks around, drinking in the scenery. You know, I had my doubts about a destination wedding. The rustic barn scene has been done to death, but this property? It is stunning. Pictures don't do it any justice. 
This place, it's such a gift, isn't it, Ricky? Ricky facetiously raises his glass of juice. Oh, Wilda, you'll probably live to be a hundred out here with all the work to keep you strong and the homegrown organic food to keep you healthy. That is, if the Puerto Rican economy doesn't completely collapse under Trump. Mija, it's like I told you the other day. Puerto Rico's death warrant was signed years ago by Clinton. The husband, not the wife, will make do, no matter who's in the White House, one way or another. Arms up. Claire raises her arms. Awilda pulls out a measuring tape and wraps it around Claire's waist. Moment of truth. Bien healthy. Jenny always liked them bigger. Okay, leave the pants. Leave the pants in my sewing room. Thank you so much. You're a lifesaver. Claire exits into the house. I told you Jenny would marry white. Did I told that or did I told that? Awilda collects her sewing implements. No one speaks for a moment. Claire re-enters in her previous outfit. Thanks again. I'll have Tara run them over to Kukos. When's your family getting here, Claire? Awilda throws Ricky a look. They're not coming. Why not? They're not invited. Having a daughter of the sapphic persuasion didn't really mesh with their politics. Awilda's walking me down the aisle. Your babies are your babies. Your blood is your blood, no matter who they love. I've always felt that. Thank God for chosen families. Ricky squeezes the glass he's holding until it breaks in his hand. Ah. Oh, are you okay? Ay, Dios mio. Dad, are you all right? What is wrong with you? These are my good glass. Bobby, you're bleeding. Ricky rushes into the house, holding out his bloody hand. Tara follows him off. Awilda and Claire stand there for a moment. Awilda starts to pick up the pieces of the broken glass. It isn't a party until something breaks, right? The party isn't for two more days. Well, yeah. Jenny and I are still planning on going to Cabo Rojo tonight. You sure you don't want to join us? Yeah, I'm going to stay put and enjoy an empty house before this shitstorm hits. Claire smiles and impulsively pulls Awilda into a hug. Thank you. For everything. Jenny and I are so happy. Think nothing of it, Mommy. You're family now. Claire exits. Tara enters, carrying a Bluetooth speaker in Ricky's iPod Touch. Where'd your father go? He just stormed off toward the cottages. Tara sets down the iPod and speaker. Awilda exits into the house and re-enters, carrying a box containing jars of fruit preserves and spools of ribbon. Help me with the centerpieces. Okay. Music? What do you want to listen to? Is it your iPod or your father's? Dad's. I left mine at home. Aye. Just put it on shuffle and hope for the best. An Adele song begins to play on the speaker. Maybe hello. Ay, por favor, anything but that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Tara skips to the next track. Nina Simone's rendition of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood begins to play. Who's this guy singing? Mija, that's a woman. What? No. Nina, see? That's Nina Simone? There's some bass in that voice, damn. A long pause. Awilda casts a suspicious eye offstage toward the woods. So, your father's friend, does he work at La Fontaña? Definitely not. And your father never dropped his name or anything? No. I just hope they're not dating. Dad needs a young guy with dimples and a bubble... Somebody who laughs a lot. (laughs) (laughs) How's your mother? She's good. Chris put a ring on it. Good for her. Let me tell you something, mamita. This is very important. If you ever get married, 
and you make your loved ones and friends book flights and hotels at holiday rates to be with you on that blessed day, you better send their asses home with something better than jelly. Que mal educada. A wheel that derisively holds up a mason jar. It's artisanal. They're preserves. She made this in her basement in Crown Heights. All, <laughs> All preserves are made in basements. That's sort of... You know what? You're right. Never mind. They work without speaking. The Nina Simone song ends. The iPod shuffles to the next track. The recording of Margot's interrogation plays. Sorry, go ahead. Ricky, I've been hired by St. James High School to sort out the allegations of child molestation level against John Rockford. You were named as a victim, so here I am. The firm's background, so that you know, my parents each spent 10 years with the FBI. Before they left the FBI, they... Tara and a wheel that glare at the speaker. Tara turns it off. What the fuck is this, a, a podcast? Turn that off. The, it, next track. As a matter of fact, silence is golden. Tara picks up the iPod and looks at the screen. <clears throat> it, it's a voice recording. It's dated yesterday. What's she talking about? Was dad, was he assaulted or... I don't know. How could you not know? I don't know, Tara. Don't... Tara turns the speaker back on. I did, but I... You know, a week ago, I woke up and turned on my phone and found this, hold on. Ricky, I initiated contact with St. James concerning John Rockford. I gave him your name and told him he molested you the year he started teaching. I sincerely hope you'll reach out to Principal McMillan about this. I hope you're well. Hector Reyes. Tara pauses the recording, trembling. John Rockford. Who's that? Abuela, that's friend, that's him, he's here. Why would he bring him here? A wheel that looks off toward the woods. Lower the volume on this thing. Tara complies. Play it. Blackout. Scene two, the woods. John wanders through the grounds. Ricky enters, a machete strapped to his belt and his left hand wrapped in a rag. Funny meeting you here. Hi. What's the machete for? I thought I'd cut back some of the dead growth on the platano trees. <laughs> Well, this place is amazing. The air is so thick, it feels like it's closing in on every side. But in a good way. It's just incredible. Your kid's great. Smart. Chip off the old block. Thanks. How old were you when... I was 15. Oh, wow. Uh, who's her mother? This girl I met out here on the mountain. Marisol. I'm glad you settled down with... Uh... We're not married. We're better off as friends. Well, that's good. For Tara's sake. Yeah. So Hector's really bringing the heat. It's all a sham, Ricky. Don't think anything of it. For, forget Hector. Tell me, are, are you seeing anyone? Where are you living? What do you do for work? I'm a... a stockbroker. I bought a place in Hell's Kitchen in 2003. And, uh... I have a boyfriend, Andy. He's a veterinarian. He specializes in cats. Andy's short, but he's real diesel. <laughs> Our friends call him Queen Meathead. We went through a rough patch a while back, but we did a lot of work on ourselves now. And uh, we're in a great place. He's in Greenwich with his family for Christmas. They love me. It's real nice. He's definitely marriage material. I'm glad for you, Ricky. Ricky smiles, the lies he just told settling in the pit of his stomach. 
Why did you come? Why did you invite me? I don't know. I was drunk, to tell you the truth. Hector reached out and... I sat on it for a week. Got me thinking about us. That woman came to my house and drug up all this old shit and it just... She just popped all my stitches, opened that wound. Just like that. It seemed like a good idea at the time to involve you. I thought... I don't know what I thought. Fifteen years is a long time to have a stitched wound. The cut was deep. What can I tell you? John looks at Ricky's cut hand. Speaking of, what happened Nothing here? is fine. What exactly did you say to this Margot person? Everything. I thought I could help by explaining that there was love there, you know? That it wasn't the perversion she was trying to make it out to be. She had pictures of other boys. Yeah, that was probably a ploy. Police, they have a laundry list of tactics to manipulate people into giving statements that fit their narrative. She wasn't with the police. Oh. Well, that's good. Uh, did she say who she... Are you running? Is that why you came out here? Yeah, I wanted to see you. That's the truth. I, I thought it'd be romantic. Like, why not? Flying off to Puerto Rico to be with you on a whim and... I didn't have any Christmas plans. You were going to be alone on Christmas? Yeah, I'm afraid so. You don't have nobody? No, and I still can't ever go back home. Anyway, I'd rather be here with you. This is as close to paradise as it gets, I think. I'm glad you think so. My parents, they, they found the letters, the mixtapes, the liner notes you wrote out, all of it. They sent me here to straighten me out the summer after they found out. Your mother read our letters and they didn't catch on? Nope. I'm sorry. I, w I wish I could make it up to you somehow. Tell me it isn't true. It isn't true. I swear on my life. You believe me, right? You have to believe me. Ricky, I, I would have never risked my job for some sleazy fuck with a student. I thought you were special. But truth be told, I'm a little bummed. I was hoping to at least be able to steal a kiss. Ricky stares at John for a moment. John kisses him. The kiss ends, their foreheads touch. I loved you. I never stopped loving you. That woman, whoever she was, she's chasing ghosts. She... Does she give you any names? Ricky pulls away, awash in doubt. Let's go. Where are we going? I want to take you on a tour of the grounds. Lead the way. Please. After you. John looks down at Ricky's machete, takes a deep breath, and starts to walk. Ricky follows. Scene three. The patio later. Tara and Awilda continue to listen to the recording. Awilda sits rigid. Tara is slumped, clutching a Kleenex. White noise from the speaker, then. Hi. Uh, I'm trying to reach John Rockford. Could you try his line, please? John Rockford? It's Ricky Ramos? Uh... It's Ricky. I, uh, we were. We need to talk. They're coming for you, John. Awilda and Tara stare at the speaker. Tara smiles bitterly. Your babies are your babies. Your blood is your blood, no matter who they love. No wonder he flew off the handle before. You're so full of shit, I bet you can taste it creeping up the back of your throat. No wonder he, ever comes, he never comes here. Don't even. That was a different time, Tara. There were diseases. There was AIDS. Kids were getting beaten to death. 
Your generation doesn't know. Don't tell me what the fuck I know. I may not have lived through it, but I'm up on the facts, the history. It was 1999. You act like it was the 50s. It's still dangerous out there. Look at Orlando. Look at... I sent him out here to teach him a lesson. And forcing your son into the closet would have spared him that? Fuck the world out there. It was dangerous here with you. Ay, por favor. I know people who did worse. I have cousins who were disowned, thrown into the streets with nothing. People still put their kids out. We didn't do that. Oh, that's so decent of you. How noble. Santa Aguilda. If I squint right, maybe I could see your halo. Why was it so hard for you to just accept? We're fine with it now. It's fine. Our family is loving and accepting. Hello, I'm hosting my niece's lesbian's wedding, for God's sake. Look at Jennifer, she turned out okay? You didn't raise Jennifer, Abuela. When Claire was talking about setting him up with some cute guys, my God, the look on your face? You'd think someone put a dry, icy, cold finger up your ass. If Daddy wanted to marry a man here, what would you say? I say fine. It was a trick question. He won't marry anyone. He's not going to find anyone. He doesn't date. He doesn't go out. Back in Brooklyn, he has no friends. Your father works hard. He's moody. He keeps to himself. No, you're moody. He's completely shut down. I may be a kid, but I know enough. I... My dad is a shell, abuela. Well, your father is an adult. His happiness is his own responsibility. Parents do their best. We fuck up our kids along the way, and it makes them who they are. It gives them, how do you call it? Uh, character? Ah, si, character. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Mamita, if you knew the shit that I had to crawl out of to get where I am today, you'd drop dead. Abuela, for once, let's not make this about you. I love your father. I have so much love for him, it hurts me. Right. Love he had to earn back by having an accidental baby. I was a decoy baby. No, Tara, no. Your father's whole world. You are the reason he worked so hard. Don't tell me no. I was made to prove a point. He said it. You didn't let up until he knocked up my mom. No. Listen to me. Look at me. We may maybe made things harder for your father than they needed to be. But in spite of how young your parents were, how hard things got, it all worked out. You are a gift. Things are getting better. You're the proof. Your eyes are open. You've got a huge heart, but you still don't take shit from nobody. You think and move forward. You made that whole terrible time worth it. I know your father would say the same thing. Awilda shrinks under Tara's gaze. It was all written out for you. It was all right there. Had you seen him more as, as more than just a maricón, that scumbag had 11 boys after dad. I didn't know. Twelve visits she has to make total. That is if they're all still around. The suicide rates tend to spike up among sexually abused victims. Tara shakes her head and looks at the speaker, a beat. We have to tell Abuelo. No. Your grandfather would drag his ass into the middle of town and skin him alive. Call the police then. Handcuff him to something. I don't have handcuffs. The ones in your nightstand? Those are broken. Mira, no sea freca. <laughs> They're your handcuffs. Awilda paces, thinking. We can't call the police. Why not? And tell them what? That your father gave him up some, to some lawyer, warned him that they were coming, and then invited him out here. That's aiding and abetting. Maybe not. It would look bad. Why is he here? 
Why would your father bring him here? A wheelbarrow paces. Tara looks off toward the woods, suddenly scared. What? What is it? When he stormed off, he, he grabbed the machete. Awilda looks off toward the woods. You don't think... No, 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 no. That's not his way. Go to Vieques with your father. I'll stay behind and I'll tell John he's not welcome here. When you and your father get back, he'll be gone. I'll tell him John left. Tito and the boys are coming back here. I'll have backup if I need it. Awilda tosses Tara a set of car keys. You know what? Wait in the car. I'll go tell your father. Don't let him drive. Abuela. I'm sure everything is fine. And if it isn't fine, I'll... I'll fix it. Okay. Tara. We never heard that recording. Am I supposed to just sit on this? Until after John's gone, yes. Please. Apurate, coño. My camping bag. I'll get it. Vete pal carro. Awilda watches as Tara exits. Awilda then starts off toward the woods when Ricky enters, wiping the machete as he approaches. He tucks it into his belt. A moment. What are you doing with that? I just took John on a tour of the grounds. And you needed the machete. I was cutting back some of the dead growth. Awilda looks over Ricky's shoulder. Thank you. Where's your friend now? He's sleeping. Don't disturb him, okay? Okay. Where's Tara? She's waiting in the car. You're going to miss your boat. Ricky exits into the house. Awilda pockets his iPod and hides the speaker. Where's my iPod touch? I don't know, Bobby. Ricky re-enters carrying two duffel bags. He starts off toward the car, averting Awilda's gaze. Have fun. Do you need money? I've got money, Mom. Okay. Be back in time for the rehearsal dinner. Do I have to go to that? She's the flower girl. She can't miss it. Ricky, let her drive. Fine. Ricky. The machete. Ricky puts the machete on the table. Awilda stares at him. What? Awilda pulls him into a hug. He wanely reciprocates. I love you. Be careful. I will. Ricky exits. Off stage, the sound of a car starting and driving off. Awilda runs into the house. She returns with a backpack. She digs into it and pulls out a handful of empty shot bottles of liquor and another. She finds a wad of folded up paper and she opens it. When she discovers that the papers are the Xeroxed photos, she drops them on the table. Her face contorts as if she might cry. She spreads out the photos and looks at the boys. She stands for a moment, furious, trembling. She looks off toward the woods, blackout. Scene four, the back cottage, which strongly resembles the hotel room from part one. John sits at the foot of the unmade bed smoking a cigarette. He's freshly showered with a towel wrapped around his waist. A laptop is open on the table in the eating area. We find him mid-phone call. I don't really know how to do this. I started rooting around on the internet, but I'm afraid if I do a Google search, it'll get flagged by the FBI or something. Yeah, I have 5000 in cash and a passport. Well, I didn't want to travel with more because I didn't want to raise any flags. Now, I'm in the hills of bumfuck Puerto Rico. Because this is where he is. I needed to know how much he knew. Awilda enters, lingering outside the cottage, the machete tucked into her belt. In her arms, she's got a tray loaded with food. She eavesdrops. Yeah, I thought it'd be best to see him in person. And I figured if I were going to run, this would be as good a place as any to start. Well, I know that now. Now, I looked into it. I don't want to go to Bangkok. My money should go far in Latin America. 
Yeah, I guess I do have a type. John looks at his watch. Great. Yeah, Peru then. Thank you. Let me call you back. John ends the call, dials a number, and puts it to his ear. Hi, honey. It's John. Yeah, I know. I know. I picked up one of those throwaway phones from a Walmart out here. Uh, My mother's affairs are a mess, but at least we made some progress on the funeral arrangements. I know. I know, but she's been out of my life for so long, and I didn't want to ruin Christmas and drag you and the kids out here, especially not with the baby. How are they? Oh, I miss her, too. Well, I am sad, Barbara. We may have been estranged, but she's still, she's still my mother. I should get back to it. I will. I love you, too. John ends the call. He stares at the phone, drops it on the table, and lights another cigarette. Awilda knocks. Back for round two, Ricky? John opens the door. Oh. Hey, Mrs. Ramos. Dinner is served. Uh, you read my mind. I'm famished. Uh, sorry, let me get decent. Awilda pushes past him into the room. She notices the unmade bed and ignores it, putting the tray down on the table. John exits into the bathroom and dresses. While he's gone, Awilda glances at the laptop screen. It smells great. Thank you. Are you smoking in here? Oh, yeah, Ricky said it was okay. Do you have another? Sure. John gives Awilda a cigarette from his pack. She tears the filter off and pops it in her mouth. John lights it. You mind if I smoke while you eat? Not at all. No filter, that's pretty hardcore. I smoked on filter cigarettes at my job in New York. Whole habits die hard, you know? <laughs> I know. Awilda sits, unsheaths the machete, and holds it as if it were a cane. The blade's tip resting on the floor. You guys and your machetes. I always carry a blade at night. There are predators out here. I don't know, what kind? All kinds. Wouldn't a gun be the weapon of choice? It's long range and all. Sometimes you don't see them coming until they're up close. Huh. John crosses to the plate of food and uncovers it. Arroz con pollo, platano maduro, and avocado from the farm. I was going to separate the pollo from the rice, but I boiled the rice and chicken stock, so I figured it'd be pointless. It's fine. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Awilda watches intently as he sits down, unfolds a cloth napkin onto his lap, and picks up his utensils, a fork and a sharp steak knife. He looks at the knife and weighs it in his hand. He loads his fork, sniffs the food, and starts to take a bite. He stops. What was your old job? I was a secretary on Wall Street. How was that? Volatile. I bet. Must have been tough. I was a good fit. You need that thick skin to work around those kinds of men. What's your line of work? Real estate. Oh. What firm? Douglas Element, commercial. Retail spaces, mostly. Here I am, chewing your ear off. Eat. John carefully eats his food. This is a lovely property. How long have you had it? This place has been in my family for five generations. My sister and I inherited it. Are you partners in the enterprise? Oh, she wanted nothing to do with this place. She passed last year. Awila crosses herself. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. I miss her every day. So, how do you know my son? I was his AA uh, sponsor. Ah. So, that's how a commercial real estate agent crosses path with a sanitation worker. John gives Awila a confused look. He files that one away for later. How does that work, um, AA? 
your work uh, steps with a sponsor. When you've completed them, you sponsor other people, take them through the steps. You go to meetings to cope with triggers, bitch about your job, revel in all the small victories. The object of the game is to undo all the faulty wiring installed by old ideologies, alcoholic thinking, and shitty parenting. John smiles and takes a bite of his dinner. Sounds like brainwashing to me. Yeah. You know what they say, some brains need washing. Sometimes I think Ricky should have stuck with that. He's a very guarded person, but my door is always open. How long have you been in the program? Eight years. Ish. Uh, my landing wasn't the smoothest. The landings never are when the destination is AA. Have you been? No, I'm not a drinker. Ricky told me he knows you from La Fontaine. Oh, uh, right. Well, uh, we did meet there. They, they serve amazing food there. Great reviews on Yelp. La Fontaine is a community center. Oh, uh, well, they had a potluck. That's one of them. John opens the bottle of water. He sniffs the mouth of the bottle. Awilda smiles. It's not poison. Don't worry. Habit. I always smell things before I ingest them. He takes a small sip. What are you doing here? All by yourself at Christmas time. Your son heard I was going to be on, on the island and invited me to drop in. I've been in San Juan for a few days. It's close, so I figure, what the hell, why not? San Juan isn't close. It's two hours away. I, it's not. Well, it seemed close. Why you stay? Where, uh, actually? Where you stay in San Juan? A hotel. Which one? The W. What'd you do while you were there? Lots of sights. John begins to cough. Arilda sits forward in her seat, but doesn't move to help him. He spits out a small bone. Jeez, I didn't know there'd be bones in this. Sorry, should have warned you. So I have a question. How does a woman go from being a secretary on Wall Street to a farmer slash hotelier in Puerto Rico? Awidla stands up, takes another cigarette from John's pack. She tears off the filter and lights it. She paces as she smokes. Ever since 9-11, I wanted to leave New York. When I saw the change coming in Bushwick, I renovated the house we owned, rented out two of the floors, and got the hell out. That's genius. Thank you. I caught a lot of flack for it. But let the bunch of shadows talk. They weren't paying my bills. Who could fault you for making the most of your own property? People resented the fact that I was charging white people prices, fueling the gentrification. Oh, haters gonna hate, right? <laughs> yep. That house was paid for, so the rental made me enough money to build more cottages here. We don't get any real revenue from the crops that grow on the land. They're not crops, exactly. It's all naturally occurring vegetation. People like their food clean, untampered with. When they're traveling, they want a unique experience. They want to feel like they've stepped into someone else's way of life. Sometimes these pendejos pay me to come here and do farm work. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's brilliant congratulations it's almost it never came to me well i came when i came back i was one strike of a match away from burning the place to the ground but my sister stopped me she told me i have to leave the world in a better shape than it was when i found it mission accomplished i'd say and why did you name the house terra when I inherited this land, I wanted to reinvent it, give it a new identity, you know? It needed one. I was born in Brooklyn, but when I met my husband Tito in high school, they sent me back here to try to drive us apart, make us forget about each other. 
When I got here, the grounds were overgrown and neglected, littered with rotting fruit and swarmed with flies. The main house had fallen into disrepair. My senile grandmother lived out here with two uncles, my uncles Julio and Edgardo. Living here with them was like living with werewolves in a world where the moon was full every night. I'd have to hide myself away before they would turn. Within a week, I had it down to a science, but over the course of so many months, you run out of places to hide. Tito came here and fought his way through my family to take me back to New York. I'll never forget the car ride to the airport. I imagined this whole town up in flames, like the burning of Atlanta in the movie. He took me back to Brooklyn. We got married, and that's where I stayed until I inherited this place. What became of your uncles? Dead. Cirrhosis of the liver. My grandmother lived up here alone until she slipped and fell. No one found her for days. It was painful and slow. Every time I've come to this cottage, I can't help but think of them. Why is that? Because I had it built over their graves. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, I had their gravestone removed, pulverized, and used as a gravel for the driveway. Awilda crosses to the table, takes the fork, and eats a bite of the arroz con pollo. Anyway, to answer your question, I named the house Tara because, as problematic as Gone with the Wind might be, I've always seen it as a resurrection story, a survival, a survival story. As far as the Confederacy was concerned, Scarlett couldn't have been bothered. She left the business of war to, be, to, to the men and kept her eyes on the prize. Survival. She made her way however she had to. When everything fell apart, in the end, she had her home. She had Tara. I didn't have any place like that, so I created it. I've watched the world change. My neighborhood back in Brooklyn change, and I've tried to remain adaptable. I've tried to learn to roll with the change, not repeat the mistakes that were made with me. The peace, poor planning, the ignorance, like my sister said, I have to leave the world a better place than it was when I found it. It's a really noble aspiration. Well, I've stumbled. I made some of the same mistakes my mother did, and worse. I'm not. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to make up for them. I don't know if I'll live long enough to get there, but I take comfort in knowing exactly where to start. It's called comfort, but it'll do just fine. Awilda crosses to the table, takes the fork, and eats a bite of the arroz con pollo. How long are you going to be here? I'm going back to New York tomorrow. Awilda glances at the computer screen. New York? Then why are you Googling flights to Thailand? John looks at the screen and calmly closes the laptop. Just planning the next trip. Uh, spring break will be here before you know it. By then I'll need a break from the kids, I'm sure. The kids? You've got kids? My co-workers, they're, they're all like 12. <laughs> it's just an expression. A little condescending, I suppose. Oh, I thought you might have meant 
Biscuits. Awilda pulls the Xerox yearbook photos out of her pocket and starts dropping them on the table one by one. John stares down at them. My wife knows I'm here. Your wife thinks you're off planning a funeral. So let's cut the bullshit, shall we? Oh, Awilda sits, gripping the machete. I trust you're going to turn that thing on yourself when you're through. You should. You deserve the business end of that blade just as much as I do. The first time I laid eyes on your son, he was sitting at the edge of a cafeteria bench trying to find a way into the conversation at the table and failing miserably. He finally gave up, inhaled his lunch as quickly as he could, and left. As he walked away, I thought, there's someone in the world who is as alone as I am. I got to know him, and sure enough, I was right. Until I wasn't, because neither of us was alone anymore. Not when we had each other. There was light in his eyes when we were together. It was as if he'd stand two inches taller whenever I walked into the room, and every day when I'd stop at your corner to let him out of the car, I watched that light go out. As he'd make his way to your house, his head would hang a little lower, shoulders would slump. His gait would change. He'd shrink. Pulled at my heart every time. You made it so easy. Awilda hesitates as she takes in what he said, tears gathering in her eyes. She holds the machete a little lower. John rushes Awilda, tackling her to the floor, trying to wrestle the machete from her hand. He succeeds. A dirty fight ensues. Awilda puts up a good fight, but John knocks her unconscious. He stands over her, holding the machete to her throat. After a moment, he tucks it into his belt and makes quick business of gathering his belongings. He exits into the bathroom and gathers his toiletries. Awilda stirs. She shakes herself awake and looks around. She grabs a curtain tie and stands against the wall to the side of the bathroom door. When John enters from the bathroom, she pounces, wrapping the curtain tie around his neck. In the struggle, the machete slips from the belt and falls to the floor. She's almost home when... Awilda? Awilda, are you here? <laughs> Hello? We're back from Cabo Rojo. We brought you some flan. Awilda hesitates for a moment. John seizes his chance. He frees himself from her grasp and gut punches her. When she's doubled over, John picks up the machete and raises it. Claire enters carrying a takeout bag. John looks over at her. Awilda, what the? Awilda grabs a steak knife from the dining table and slides it between John's ribs. Awilda pivots behind John and stabs him repeatedly through the ribs, the back, the stomach. He goes down in a heap, his lungs filling with blood. He falls to the floor. Oh my God! He just attacked me. Why? Who is he? It's a long story. I'm calling the police. Don't. Why not? We have to. Claire sees the photos. What are all these photos? Awilda holds out the iPod touch. Before you call the police, press play. Brown out. After an extended moment, the lights come back up. Awilda is seated on the bed. Claire stares down at the Xerox photos. The recording of Ricky's interview plays. They all have some version of the same story. Each one had a thing he bonded with them over. Music, comic books, New York history, Pokemon, dinosaurs, abandoned subway stations, back to the fucking future. This is what I think happens. Pedophiles generally are attracted to the shape of an individual's body. 
Some pedophiles are... Claire pauses the recording. She looks down at John, then at Awilda. What the fuck is he doing here? I don't know. I don't know. My son invited him here. Who knows he's here? Who knows he's here, Awilda? Para Enrique and us? I heard him on the phone with someone who was trying to help him get out of the States. Claire stares down at John's corpse. Get up. Let's go. Claire, please. I'm not ready. Whatever you're going to do, let's wait until the morning. I can't. I want to at least explain to my husband and the boys before- It can't wait until morning. It has to be now. In two days, I am marrying your niece and starting the next chapter of my goddamn life. <laughs> this is a farm. I assume you've got a pickaxe and some shovels? Awilda, for once, is speechless. Look, I don't pretend to know a hell of a lot about this part of the world, but something tells me, even if we were to lay it all out for the cops, they wouldn't be too sympathetic. And frankly, it might all just be better off this way. Awilda grabs John's feet. Claire grabs him underneath the shoulders. Get me the tools, pick a spot, and I'll start the digging. Clean up your wounds, come up with some bullshit excuses to how you got them. Will Jenny come looking for you? She's passed out of cuckoos. Too many daiquiris. Claire and Awilda carry John out of the cottage. Awilda stops. She locks eyes with Claire. Thank you. I'm not doing this just for you. I love my son. I did the best I could. Blackout. Scene four. Bioluminescent Bay, Vieques. Tara stands at the ledge of a small pier, staring down at the glowing bioluminescent water around her. Ricky sits nearby. He looks over at Tara. What are you thinking about? Gone with the wind. I might write about it for my film elective. You should maybe put some more time into Algebra 2. I'm pulling that grade up. I got a tutor, the senior, Frankie. When do you meet? Where? We meet during my free periods in study hall. You couldn't get a girl tutor? Frankie's gay, don't worry. How do you know that? It's his whole identity. Every Insta he posts ends with hashtag fag swag. It's a little extra. <laughs> no tea, no shade. What did you just say? Is that English? It's a thing queer people say. They stole it from the black ladies. Then, then. leave it to the queers and the black ladies then. Excuse me, I'm allowed to say it. I'm an, I'm an ally and the co-chair of the newly formed LGBTQQIA PSA at school. <laughs> Ricky is mystified by the string of letters. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, panse pansexual, straight alliance. We got the idea after Orlando and doubled down after the election. Oh. Well, good. Frankie's out, and that's okay. The girls are mean to him, but none of the boys come for Frankie. He's six foot seven and 300 pounds. He's a bear, that's like a fat gay hairy person who abrases his curves. I know what a bear is. <laughs> Tara smiles and clears her throat. Did mom call you? Yes, to check on me before I got on the airplane. Did she have any news? Yes, she texted me a picture of the engagement ring. Chris tries too hard with me, like way too hard, but he's better than the last one. Now it's your turn, but first you gotta meet someone. I can't believe I've never been here before. You have to get out more, Daddy. Ricky's lips contort in what passes for a smile. Did you ever want to do anything other than sanitation, Dad? I don't know. Why, you got something against my job? No, it's just, I figure 
I came along and you needed to jump on the first thing that was available to you so you could support a family. What are you getting at? Nothing. Nothing. So you wanted to be a sanitation worker? I wanted to earn a good paycheck. The hours ain't so bad either. What's the deal? I feel like I'm on Oprah all of a sudden. Why is John here? Tell me the truth. Ricky thinks. He looks at Tara. I needed to be sure about something. I needed answers. Did you get them? Ricky shrugs. Don't shrug. Remember when I used to shrug a lot? Anytime anyone ever asked me a question, I would just shrug. That shit drove me crazy. Right. And you said no one gets what they want by shrugging. You have to speak up and be twice as loud as anyone else. Yeah. I gotta speak up about something now. Okay. When we get back home, I want you to get help. Ricky stares at Tara queerly. I heard the recording, Dad. I wasn't snooping, I swear. I just put your iTunes on shuffle while I was making centerpieces while you were gone with him. Ricky freezes, angry and shamed. Why did you bring him out here? I'm not talking about this with you. Ricky can't bear to look at her. Dad, you don't believe him, do you? He denies everything. No. I don't believe him. Ricky shakes his head no. He cries. Tara is at a loss. She consoles him. I feel like an idiot. How could I have not seen it? How fucked up it was? I've been walking around all these years thinking that I... I'm such an idiot. You're not an idiot. They stare down at the water. Call that Margot woman when you get back to Brooklyn and get a referral. I'll, I'll sit with you while you make the call if you need someone to be with you. Sometimes that helps me, like when my friend Patty sits with me before I open up my report card. It helps to have someone with you. Um, we have to go back. No, let's stay here. Please? The recording? Did your abuela hear it too? Tara bites her lip, blackout. <clears throat> Scene five, the lake shore. Claire drunkenly toddles into a spotlight in a simple, elegant wedding dress. She's holding a microphone in one hand and a glass of coquito in the other. Hola. Hola, hello. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen, senoras y senoras, hola. Thank you for coming. Feliz Navidad. delectable, right? I just married the love of my life! I just married the love of my life. Jenny, thank you for putting up with my shit and being amazing. You're everything. You're all of it. I'll be brief. <laughs> Before this day came, I was scared. I was scared to come out here, I'll admit it. <laughs> I'm a city girl, I don't do the woods, okay? I hear crickets and I think, where's Jason Voorhees? Where's the axe murderer? I was also... Claire takes a sip of the coquito. <sighs> this coquito is the truth! <laughs> Goddamn! <laughs> um... When I was a girl, I knew what was what vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, my orientation. And even then, I looked at my parents and resigned myself to the fact that when this day came, 
my father would refuse to walk me down the aisle. I knew I'd have to fix my own veil and comfort myself and calm my own jitters. I had zero delusions about who they were. I knew I'd be going it alone. No, no, don't do it. Don't cry for me, Puerto Rico. <laughs> I'm not sad, I'm not. I came to this farm and I didn't have to walk myself down the aisle. <sighs> Thanks, Tito. And Awilda and Tara helped me fix my veil. Tito and Awilda, their sons, Ricky and Paco. Sorry, Poochie, sorry, I'm so sorry, I swear I know your name. <sighs> anyway, <sighs> these people have shown me the kind of warmth and acceptance that I know that in this family, I will not be lacking for love. The kind of love that feeds you, challenges you, calls you on your shit, jokes about you to your face. The love here, it, it breathes, it bleeds, it fights. It's flawed because it lives. When Jenny was reciting her vows, I was holding it together, but then I lost my shit because I looked out at your faces and I, Look around. Look at each other. This is what love looks like. Lights out on Claire as she polishes off her glass of coquito. <laughs> Lights up on Tara and Ricky. They stand on the front patio high above the lakeshore. They're dressed for the wedding, both nursing Coca-Cola. They look down at the wedding scene. Neither seems particularly happy. She is bombed. Yup. Shit-faced. Favorite wedding moment, go. The wedding's not over yet. The jury's still out. You? I think either the vows or when Claire split the ass of her pants during the rehearsal dinner. Yeah, that's gotta be it. Priceless, amazing abuela's face. I think maybe Jenny marching in for it was me. Feeling good? That was a perfect choice. You know, everyone seems to be onto this Nina Simone chick. I'm starting to think you've been holding out on me. I'll give you a crash course when we get home. You gonna take me to see her when she tours? She's dead, baby. <laughs> Of course she is. Awilda enters decked out for the wedding. Tara, get back down to the lake. They're about to do the first dance. Ricky, are you okay today? Drive. Ricky holds up his bottle of Coca-Cola. The baker just called. He got a flat. Can you meet him and get the cake? Yeah. Tara, apurate, coño. Let's go back to the party. Tara doesn't respond. After a moment, she looks over in Awilda's direction. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you addressing me? What's the name you're trying out today? Eulalia. <laughs> All right then, Eulalia. Oye, me sabaina. Hey, guess your ass down to the lake. See you down there, Dad? After I get the cake, I guess. Okay. Tara exits. Awilda watches her go, then joins Ricky. That wedding planner has this shit on lock. He's kind of cute. Don't. You know? Don't do that. Come back down to the wedding. You don't want to be rude. I'm going to hang back a minute. Mm. I'll hang back with you then. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Ricky. You've gone your whole life not apologizing to anyone. Don't start now. It's making me a little uncomfortable. Tough. They stare out the, at the lake for a spell. 
after the holidays. I'm going to build another cottage for Tara, oh, Eulalia, or whatever her name's going to turn out to be. I haven't decided where yet. Behind the grapefruit trees? Over that patch of freshly dug dirt? Hmm. That's as good a place as any, I suppose. I should get that cake. In the distance, an MC is heard speaking into a microphone. Ricky pauses. Ladies and gentlemen, senoras y senores, I'd like to invite the brides to the floor for their first dance. Raucous applause and the opening bars of a song are heard in the distance. Awilda and Ricky stand side by side, looking down at the lakeshore. End of play. like this in the city they're all snuffed out by the big bright lights and the fairy tales of self-pity in a city where everybody's pretty you're thinking they are witty nobody is wondering just how you're doing I find peace here in Oh, why, please? Take me up the mountain where the sky is open, where my heart is always long to be. Take me where it's colder till my lungs begin to smolder. Leave the city, find some air you can breathe. Take this home. Can I take this feeling home? Can I take this feeling home? There are people like this in the city, they're all strung out in claustrophobic crowds. Where but now their minds are running and it's done enough, they never stop for nothing. Not to squeeze a bit of loving like a coven where they never want green. How you doing? Ah, 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 I find peace. Here in these no-light peace. Take me up the mountain where the sky is open, where my heart is open. Oh, for a while, for 
elevator bringing me song. The river rushes from its source, but it's got to have a mouth. Thank you so much. Uh, give us a moment while we change over here and invite our playwright, Brian, down. Um, can we give a round of applause for our playwright? For that amazing play? Um, I guess to start, uh, what I'm curious about is I, I just found every character so incredibly rich um, and the story so compelling, but I wondered, were you inspired to write the story or were you inspired by certain characters that were kind of living in your brain and the story developed out of those characters or did the, the story happen and then you built characters for that story? Uh, the story definitely came before the characters. I think... Um, like I like I wrote the first part when I was in college, and I was like I actually aspired to write like a sort of a theatrical send up of that really horrible movie with Denise Richards called Wild Things because <laughs> I thought New York theater needs that. Um, but, um, uh, so I mean I started the first thirty pages of that play and I put it away, and um, and I didn't think about it for a really long time. And I mean full disclosure, like my alma mater had an incident like this sort of go down. And so a third party was sort of, you know, went into the school and started naming names and talking about, you know, uh, making allegations against a teacher. And I thought, well, what if something like that had happened to somebody who was like really maladjusted? And um, and I thought about the play, that the th this thing that I had written, because it sort of fetishized and completely dismissed like the, the weirdness of a, a student-teacher relationship. And, um, and then I saw Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Yo, have you seen Gone with the Wind? <laughs> it is so fucked up. Like I saw it when I when I had written the, after I'd written the first two thirds of the play. I had no idea what the last third of the play was going to be. I knew it was going to take place in a farm on Puerto Rico, and that's all I knew. And then I saw Gone with the Wind, and I thought the world has completely misremembered the relationship between Scarlet and Rhett as this great love affair of American 
you know, cinema. I'm like, this is like a business arrangement at best. So like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? And it was smart. And I thought it was really ahead of its time. But at the same time, I mean, with all the other things that came into it, um, I don't know. Like after I saw Gone with the Wind and started doing a lot of thinking about it, my brain exploded. And that's how I figured out the last third of the play. <laughs> but then like, I didn't know how it would like end end. And then like, I mean, I don't know. I love horror movies. If you've ever seen Last House on the Left, um, yeah, like, I mean, this sort it sort of, like, veers into that territory. So it's this weird stew of, like, different inspirations and, um, you know, I don't know, different styles. But I just figured, fuck it. And the characters, Claire is, like, the most, is the last person I figured out who would be, you know, would be in the play. And um, the play wasn't called Tara until I had seen Gone with the Wind. And I thought Tara the character and Tara the farmhouse are both emblematic of a sort of troubled past, but also an optimistic future. Mm -hmm. And when I started writing this play politically, I think our country was in a completely different place and I was more optimistic. And I think I am still optimistic, but um, I don't know, this play exists now in a sort of political and social climate that's becoming a little bit more charged. So I'm like, I'm gonna lean into that, mm -hmm. so. Here we are. <laughs> um, nice. So I'm not sure I have a, like, a question here. I just want to point out something and see like what conversations pop up. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so for me, one thing that stuck out is this theme in which the lines are blurred between love and abuse. Mm. So what, what kind of commentary are you trying to, to make about that? Just that those lines can be very blurry. I think that's about where the com the, the, the the commentary begins and ends. Do you know what I mean? I think, um, yeah. I think you know more consciously. I was thinking about what happens when music, time, and nostalgia work on us and really fuck with the way we remember relationships. Mm. You know, um, and how sometimes it just like I mean we don't even realize it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that was really the more conscious thought. But I think the blurry lines between love and abuse, like, that's there. But, you know, I hadn't really – that just is in this world. So, you know, I just – I don't know. Like, I wasn't actually attacking that, like, very consciously. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Pretty interesting. Um, so a question I, I, I want to ask playwrights for the rest of the season is um, if – it, in 14, 15 days, we are going to have a new president named Donald, whatever, last I, name. I don't know her. I don't know her. <laughs> 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 Not my president. So, <laughs> so um, 60 seconds, what would you like to say to Mr. Donald? I don't know. Oh my God, I'd, I'd, I'd say that he's a complete fucking charlatan and he's smart because he played this fucking country like a fiddle and played the system like a fiddle. But I mean, aside from that, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I would say. I mean, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not gonna say what I would do because his cronies <laughs> would probably track me down. Yeah, it are, might involve a machete. But uh, what would I say? Party? I would just say, <laughs> Oh my God! Wow, how could you just hit me with that? I don't know. <laughs> you said you listened to the last episode. 
episode I said I didn't I, I did I didn't listen to the interview song. god okay <laughs> let me think about this no 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 I, I did prep myself okay um no right let me think what would I say to him I'd say that you know he won the presidency on a platform of hatred and fear and that you know resistance makes everybody stronger so everybody who opposes him, we're going to be struggling, but we're not going to get comfortable. We're going to struggle, and we're going to get stronger, and we're going to prevail. And I tell him, enjoy the next nine months of your presidency, because I'm sure by then you're going to get impeached <laughs> for some stupid bullshit. Um, and then I'll have Mike Pence for president. Shh. Yes, we will have. <laughs> I know that's that's the like, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure you could find Mac Mike Pence in like the back room of some shitty mm-hmm. gay bar, getting his dick sucked by whoever. That Check the receipts. Me. He is a closeted homosexual. He is as closeted as I am, Harry. Okay. <laughs> gay face. That's all I've got to say about Mike Pence. He's too pretty to be straight and too <laughs> self-hating to not be gay. <laughs> <laughs> to focus on what? Okay. All right. That's a fixation. That shit is real. <laughs> like, what's the deal? What's that? What's that about? He's just mad. Anyway, he's mad. Any other questions? Um. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, you really should. They're gonna come for my family. Like, <laughs> They're not. <laughs> they don't listen to theater. Girl. Podcast. <laughs> they don't do that. They don't do that. <laughs> All right, um, cool. <laughs> uh, we have another question that we ask all of our playwrights, and it's a lot easier. It's, what did you have for breakfast? Um, I had two breakfasts. Two. <laughs> what did you have for your first breakfast? Uh, ham and pasteles from my mom's house because I was really hungry, and that was like the leftovers. <laughs> I cleaned out that fridge and beef stroganoff. Uh, <laughs> so I, I made that I made the beef stroganoff okay. on New Year's Day and then I had a bacon egg and cheese from Bagel Boy out in Sheepshead Bay Brooklyn that sounds like three breakfasts actually the stroganoff is like the stroganoff and the and ham half. and the pastelas were all in one sitting so. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. that's breakfast number one <laughs> I'm getting it in before I go back out west and have to like eat kale <laughs> and Aww. like boiled chicken breasts or whatever mm. the fuck they have me out eating out there <laughs> on the other Sorry. coast so it's cool um so what's up? Any other I think questions? That's it. I, I, I think You're that good. You're Yo, good. what You're would you say good. to Trump, girl? <laughs> we'll find out on the last episode of the season. Dipping and ducking. I see how it is. Okay. Put the exhausted Puerto Rican on the spot. Go right ahead. I gotta pee, you guys. You got. I'm sorry. Brian has to pee. We need to wrap this up then. Yes. Um, <laughs> Before we uh, thank hear- you, I just want to say thank you to everybody yeah. who's who came out to see this and to hear this and to hear this great. I want to thank the band; they were amazing. And um, <clears throat> since this is being recorded and immortalized for all of time, as long as the internet still continues to be, I want to acknowledge three people without whom this play would not have been possible: Monica, Daniel, and Jason. And that's all I got to say about that. Thank you very much for being here. That's all for me. Thank you. Um, And we would also uh, like to thank Cloud City for hosting us, our fantastic host all season long. Um, 
And uh, a couple of people who are really integral to making uh, this show are social media manager, Sieta Gonzalez, who helps us, and uh, Fernando uh, Castillo, who uh, is our audio engineer tonight. Um, Um, I, uh, we'd also like uh, to take the time to thank our wonderful, amazing, and talented cast. They knocked it out of the park. <laughs> We'd like to thank our director, Melissa Crespo. Where are you? And... Uh Oh, and our musical guest, uh, Merrick Smith, um, who was accompanied tonight on violin by Bradley Bosenbeck, on, on cello, Zoe Hassman, on percussion, Derek Swink, and arrangements, piano, and cajon, Andy Peterson. Um, and uh, last but not least, we want to thank Brian, but he left to go pee, so we'll just thank him one more time. Give it up for Brian! And last but not least, we'd like to thank you, our wonderful audience. Without you, our recordings would not sound as great as they do, so thank you. Give yourselves a round of applause. And finally, thank you at home for listening. Um, and we're going to end with one more song by Merrick Smith to close us out. Thank you guys for joining thank us you, tonight. Everyone.
It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.